The Start. On Demand. On Demand. Mackling is fired up today over the terrible Truba trade. You'll hear his rant about how disappointed he is with the Winnipeg Jets trading Jacob Truba to the New York Rangers for a guy no one's ever heard of. Millions of people converge in downtown Toronto for the Raptors parade and rally, which resulted in four people getting shot. Do you have an escape plan when you go to a busy event like that? Chef Anna Olson joins us on how three quarters of Canadians fear they're missing out on life by not cooking more with the family. And the Riverton rifle, Reggie Leach, has received an honorary doctorate from Brock University. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling, with Loren McNabb back on Wednesday. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, June 18th podcast for The Start. Mackling, I... Yesterday afternoon, I uh, I think I went down for a nap at like 2 o'clock, and I woke up at around 6 p.m. so confused. had no idea what time it was, no idea what day it was. I thought it was Friday. You poor soul. I woke up and thought it was Friday. I'm like, well, you know, I woke up this late. I w- certainly wouldn't do that on a weekday, so it must be Friday. feels like a Friday. And then it just kind of clued in like, it's Monday. And it's Monday evening. Yeah. And, and, and. That's the worst. So it took me a while to finally get back to sleep. I don't like, I'm not the good napper. There's a, there's a, you know, a lot of people think, so what do you do? What do you do after you get off work? You go home and you take a nap? Well, yeah, yeah. For- right at 10, 10.02, we walk out the door. <laughs> That's what some people think. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm a terrible napper. So are you, you had a sleep though. I had a full, well, yeah, I ended up being asleep. There's a difference. I Once can you do- get over 20 minutes, it's not a nap anymore. Oh, and that's the problem because whenever I lie down with the intention of taking that quick power nap, mm-hmm. it, it, I can't fall asleep because I, I'll set my alarm for say 30 minutes later and I spend the whole time just thinking, okay, I got to fall asleep, got to fall asleep. And I maybe fall asleep two minutes before. It's like, did you ever do uh, tanning beds? Yes. I used to like the tanning bed uh, once I, because once you, wormed your way into being able to stay for the max time, 20 minutes or whatever it was, I could fall asleep within the first five minutes, but usually what would happen is I'd fall asleep about two, 90 seconds before the, the tan ran out, oh. and then I would just wake up feeling like garbage. Well, you're talking to the wrong guy, because as you know, I can fall asleep just about anywhere, anytime, yep. if I am tired. Uh, my my uh, osteotherapist... Uh, will be in the mid-sentence and she'll be like, are you with me? She'll be asking me how I'm feeling. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's borderline, what is it called, narcolepsy? I sometimes fear that I have narcolepsy. Yeah, yeah, like it's borderline, I think. The last couple of years, I uh, and especially after I eat, and I'm, I'm wondering, maybe I should go to a doctor on this, because anytime I eat anything that's like really sugar heavy, like... And it, to be fair, when I eat cookies, I, I am the cookie monster. I don't just have a cookie. I eat, like if I go buy a thing of, uh, we have Oreo cookies in our vending machine, and it's a package of six, I'll eat those six Oreo cookies in like 30 seconds. I've seen it. So it's just like this kind of volcano of sugar that gets sucked into my system. And then I, about 30 minutes later, I will crash, like fall asleep crash. But I'm kind of starting to wonder, like, do I, is there something wrong with me? Maybe I need that doctor to check me out. <laughs> well, I have to say, yesterday at the end of our shift, you, you do some editing, you edit some audio, and I was speaking to you, and I was pretty sure you were half asleep while we were 
talking to each other. Well, when so. you came in, I think I was asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Bleary eyed. Anyway, it's Tuesday. It's the day without any feeling. You know, Monday, we always talk Monday, of course, is Monday. Sucks. Wednesday is hump day. Thursday, oh, so close day. Yeah. Friday is the weekend. But Tuesday is just that nondescript day in the week that we have to get through to get to Wednesday. When I was 20 years old, Tuesday meant Buffalo Bills. Oh. But that's not the case anymore. Buffalo Bills yes. on a Tuesday night. That was their night. That is hard core, yeah, man. That was the night. Buffalo Bills <laughs> Saloon in Transcona. All right, man. <laughs> yeah, by the way, just a quick note. There is a video somewhere on YouTube, how to fall. Uh, it's like military training, how to fall asleep like a soldier. I have to see if I can find it, but it essentially teaches you how to go down at any time. Like when you have time, even if you're not tired, how to train yourself to fall asleep when you have, when you have a moment to get the rest that you need. Cause if you know you're in for a long night or whatever, and you need to get some sleep so you can go in ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a video on that. So, okay. I'll have to check. No, I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we have three, three prizes to give away today and a concert announcement. So we're not giving anything away right now, but at six we're going to give away our first prize, which is the TEDx Allen cross tickets. He's coming to Winnipeg. Uh, Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre, June 26th. And then at 7.15, we have our final pair of Corey Hart tickets because he's playing Bell MTS Plays tonight at 8.45. We'll do Flatlanders Beer Festival tickets for the Saturday afternoon tasting at Bell MTS Place. And at 7.37, right before breakfast with the Bombers, we have a concert announcement and we'll have some tickets to give away for that. There might be some folks who are wondering if Chevy put out an email to all interested general managers, first caller through gets <laughs> Jacob Truba. You are not happy about this. <laughs> I'm not happy at all. Uh, anybody who knows how to even say the name of the player the Jets got in, in return for Jacob Truba gets a gold star from me. Really? I had never heard of Neil Pionk until last night. I had to do some research on him. And Jets Nation is up in arms over this trade. Uh, I'll have an extensive take on this later on. We'll also hear from Leah Hextall, her take on the trade. Uh, but there are not a lot of happy people this morning as it pertains to the Winnipeg Jets and their now dissolved relationship with Jacob Truba. Well, Leah Hextall describes it as a saga, and that is a fitting word because how long have we been talking about the possibility of Jacob Truba leaving the city of Winnipeg? I would say three years now. Three years it's been. Yeah, he requested a trade three seasons ago when uh, the Jets contemplated moving him to the left side. Uh, he's a right-hand uh, shooting defenseman. He's uncomfortable. He's never played on the left side. They wanted to play him perhaps with Dustin Bufflin. Uh, he said he wasn't interested in doing that. Well, wasn't really interested in playing behind Dustin Bufflin in the lineup, wanted more power play time. Now he had a career year this year. Bufflin, of course, was injured a good part of the season, and uh, Jacob Truba was able to take advantage of that and really uh, capitalize and score some points on defense. He, he got the opportunity that he wanted, uh, but the Winnipeg Jets uh, knew they were going to have to move on from him sooner than later. He was going to be a he is a restricted free agent, uh, which means that the the Jets sort of control him. But after July first 
of 2020, he becomes an unrestricted free agent. So the Jets wanted to capitalize and make sure that they got what they could get for him in advance of that happening. But the truth of the matter is, Brett, they could not really afford to pay him what they were going to have to pay him this year mm-hmm. to uh, keep him on the roster without sacrificing some other players that they'd like to sir, sign longer term. So there are lots of moving pieces to this puzzle and this decision the Jets made, but at first blush, this is uh, a trade that uh, feels a lot like, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in time to uh, Winnipeg Jets 1.0, and uh, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember when the Winnipeg Jets traded defenseman Dave Babich to the Hartford Whalers for Manitoban Winkler product Ray Newfeld. Feels a little bit like that. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb back tomorrow. I want to talk more about the Raptors parade. Tristan Field-Jones is here, Cameron Poitras, Jeff Forte. And Camille Caramali from Global News spoke to Charles Adler yesterday, and he touched on the delays on the parade route. This thing went way long. It was hot, smothering crowds, and then security preachers. Here's what he had to say. That alone was just so shocking. It just seemed so unorganized. There was just nonstop delays and hiccups right along the parade route. Um, And then, you know, we barely saw any police officers. Uh, There was some road closures. But uh, even they said that uh, prior to the shooting, it was just such a jarring scene because, as I mentioned, people were just sardine into Nathan Phillips Square. So there were um, police officers literally uh, on an upper level pulling babies and children out of the crowd because their parents were concerned that they would suffocate in the crowd. And that's where a lot of the focus went for the police officers and security. They were just trying to, it looked like the entire time, try to keep their head above water because just even with the packed crowds, they were so overwhelmed and, and underprepared, it looked like. people. It looked like people couldn't even move. No, absolutely. And it was just shocking to see. I mean, as I mentioned, pulling children out of a packed crowd is, is something that you don't think you, you'll see in Canada because usually they try to curb uh, a limit in, in a particular area, whether it's in an establishment or, or an open space. But uh, it just seemed like people weren't able to breathe or move, um, uh, let alone, you know, have an escape strategy or plan in an emergency situation. And then, you know, the worst happened. An emergency situation actually happened. And there was no exit strategy, no plan to get out just a, a large parade of literally millions of people going every which way. And four people were shot, two separate shootings, three people arrested, two people arrested in one incident, a third in another, four people shot, serious injuries but not life-threatening. But when yesterday morning, Greg, you guessed maybe a million people, turned out to be closer to two million, at least that's what the city of Toronto is is suggesting. 65,000 people can fit into Nathan Phillips Square. Uh, we don't know officially what the tally was on that, but uh, that's a lot of people, and when you see them scattering like that, that kind of makes me scared and think, okay, what would my escape strategy have been? Yeah, there are a lot of questions uh, and a lot of different angles we could approach this conversation from. Uh, the one for me, uh, I'm Winnipeg-centric, but there was a lot of ballyhoo, a lot of uh, people up in arms over the fact that during the, the Jets' whiteout parties at the 
there was going to be a limitation on how many people could participate and, of course, the security procedures. Well, now you know why you set up a perimeter the way you do and install the the security procedures so that you can at least be somewhat assured that the people who are getting into your venue aren't carrying weapons that they can discharge in this fashion, because that is the big issue, is not only the, what the, the damage the weapon can do, but it's the secondary problems that it can cause. And um, I'm old enough to remember the Who concert in Cincinnati back in 1979 when there was a stampede, a rush rush seating situation at then Riverfront Coliseum. 11 people died. And most major concert venues in North America eliminated rush seating after that. And if they had rush seating, it was very, very controlled. But I've been at concerts where people were putting their hands up and, hey, get me out of this crowd. So like I say, lots of questions coming out of this, Mm. but I can only imagine that there are going to be a ton of uh, reviews of, of procedures on something like this. But how do you say, Tristan Field-Jones, how do you say only so many people can come to a parade? Well, it's impossible. Well, and I just think there's, there's two things that kind of hit me right off the bat here. Um, number one, it's uh, mentioning Nathan Phillips Square can hold about 65,000 people. Where, well, some of the stories I've been running in my newscasts in The Wire have mentioned that at the time of the shooting, uh, now this is in and around Nathan Phillips Square, but in the immediate area, there were close to a million people there. So let alone 65,000. So I that kind of puts alarm bells in terms of was that over capacity at the time? Were they really monitoring the number of people like you mentioned? And, and I think for context out there, it's worth noting. So about 2 million people in total at this parade here. And the GTA has just over 6 million people when you look at that. So if the Winnipeg Jets were to win the Stanley Cup, mm-hmm. you'd be looking at in downtown Winnipeg, what, about 300,000 people there? I think that's assuming a pretty good it's guess. similar. I think that's a pretty good and, guess. And I think that might be... Maybe underestimating yeah. it. And, and, and in the middle of the day, there's about uh, 100,000 people, a little less than that downtown on your typical workday. So triple that amount mm-hmm. and just, just to get an idea. But, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I... Part of me would love to be part of a celebration if that were the case. But on the flip side, though, that to me is a disaster waiting to happen because how the heck do you control that? Well, big problem, I think, Cam, was the fact that this parade took so long, almost, was it five hours to get from the start to Nathan Phillips Square? So I don't think any of these people were anticipating. Some of them were there early at five o'clock in the morning. But for those that arrived at the square later on, I don't think any of them came prepared to be there for hours and hours. No, I I don't think so. There was problems with water and, you know, again, with the kids. I mean, that's it's a parent. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent myself, but that would be horrible for me. Uh, this has kind of turned me off into if I if there was something like this here in Winnipeg, I mean, you want to be a part of it. If the Jets would win the Stanley Cup. That would be just unbelievable. But I wouldn't want to be involved in something like this, crammed into a little area with a sardine, you know, stampede uh, issues like uh, concerned about a, a, a stampede or something, something, something going off. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> hot, sweltering weather jammed with, you know, 100,000 people, you know, I'm sure you couldn't really hear everything that was going on. It doesn't sound like something that's a lot of fun to me and something that, you know, how do you control 2 million people? It's impossible. I'm sure the Toronto Police Department were just sick to their stomachs having to deal with something like this. Forte, would you want to be a part of a big crowd like that? I kind of would. <laughs> of but course. I, 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 like, yeah, there there are those worries, um, but it just it seemed like a lot of fun. But uh, it's got to be more controlled, and I'm surprised they didn't have more barriers on the street, because when you saw the crowds like crowding the buses, 
Like, those buses couldn't move. I'm surprised they didn't have barriers so the buses could move. But is it reasonable to imagine that they would have even the infrastructure available to barricade that entire parade route so that people could be held back? I'm just asking the question because I I, I think this is much bigger, A, than we all could imagine. Yeah. And I think it unfortunately got way bigger than officials imagined it could get. Bruce Christie, congratulations. And Bruce knew who the Winnipeg Jets acquired in the trade for Jacob Truba. Uh, if you know who it is, uh, congratulations. Doing better than I was doing at about 8 o'clock last night. And that is going to be the subject of <laughs> Greg's rant right now. And you will find out the answer to that question in a moment if you didn't know the answer. Because I had never heard of this guy. Pionk. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like the sound uh, stone makes when you try to skip it into the lake and it just kind of goes pionk. It is a, more a sound effect, I think, than anything else. Uh, we acknowledge. I just want to acknowledge. We know there are lots of non-hockey fans listening to this program and our radio station. So we appreciate you indulging us on this. But let's face it, uh, anything Winnipeg Jets related have has people talking in the coffee shops, at work, wherever you might be today. Uh, you are going to overhear conversation about this trade. And yesterday about this time, when the Sharks signed pending free agent defenseman Eric Carlson, there was a belief that... This would benefit the Winnipeg Jets in terms of leverage and what they could receive for a trade involving Jacob Truba. We discussed that trade yesterday morning, ironically, uh, with Keith Kachuk and the whole idea of Truba moving on from Winnipeg and the fact that uh, it was writing on the wall that Jacob Truba had played his final game as a Winnipeg Jet. A uh, word was that There were 12 teams in the conversation and in negotiations with the Jets uh, at various levels. Now, there are contract status issues which were a factor in this trade. And I don't want to get caught up in the minutia and all the nuances of these things. But the belief was that Truba wanted nothing to do with another Canadian team. That was also a factor in what the Jets could get out of this trade. And there were personal issues for Jacob Truba that have been rumored for years. And in fact, he confirmed one of those last night in a conference call with Post Media. His fiance and her future as a doctor played a big role in Jacob Truba's desire to move on elsewhere. Now, Brett, uh, you and I would never speak on air about this because there are some things that go on at the radio stations, conversations that you have off the record with people. But it was Truba that brought it up last night. And we had Jacob Truba's fiance in this studio just over two years ago. And I had a conversation with her about her future as a doctor and potentially as a research doctor and told her, hey, you know, when you, when you graduated, I know lots of people at St. Boniface Hospital. She gave me a look as if to say, there's no chance I'm coming back here. So the writing was sort of on the wall for me then. And Jacob Truba, as much as solidified and and really verified that whole feeling last night. Now, at the very least, I have to admit, I thought the Jets would get a player that most average hockey fans had ever heard of. My initial take on this, this feels like a bad trade. The reality is there is no way 
Kevin Cheveldayoff does this trade if he doesn't think it is the best he can do. Yes, I know. I concede. That is a difficult pill for many to swallow this morning. Here is the Jets GM. Well, it's uh, you know it's certainly something that uh, doesn't just happen. I think you uh, there's been you know kind of lots of groundwork on on many different fronts. Uh, you know that uh, that we've um, you know been looking at it, it was uh, it was you know the, it's been out there and obviously I was open to uh, to, to mentioning that uh, you know we were discussing the possibility of of, of trading uh, Jacob uh, Truba and you know with. Uh, the uh, the opportunity not to get a uh, long term deal, um, you know, in uh, in Winnipeg here, uh, you know, we just felt it was best to open up the uh, you know the the, the door to the uh, possibility of trading him. And uh, today is the you know the day that we um, you know finalized it uh, just now. Thus, Neil Pionk becomes a Winnipeg Jet along with the twentieth overall first round uh, pick that the Jets ironically had traded to the New York Rangers for Kevin Hayes. Uh, we won't get into that trade at this moment. Now, we don't get the benefit as fans of seeing all the options that were on the table for the Jets and getting to vote on which one the Jets should pull the trigger on. And I'm not going to get into the intricacies of analytics and what some might call fancy stats around Truba, around Pionk. Uh, but for me, <laughs> the the one thing that stood out, Jacob Truba was drafted ninth overall by the Jets, Neil Pionk was never drafted. And that might be the only thing I needed to know to make an initial assessment of this trade. Pionk is from Minnesota, so there's that. Jets have lots of players from Minnesota. This is uh, close to home for her, for him. Chevy, please make me feel better. So he's a real competitive player. Like He's a player that, uh, again, when you do the research on him and you talk to different people about him, he's a, he's a competitor. He's a guy that... Uh, um, you know, has won a championship and, and uh, you know, has been part of, of, of winning uh, a winning organization and a winning pedigree. He, uh, you know, definitely killed penalties for us. Uh, you know, as far as uh, the power play, uh, you know, I know he played power play, you know, with the Rangers. But, um, you know, again, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, you look at our organization, we have, uh, you know, a couple of players that, uh, you know, we think can, uh, you know, step in and obviously, uh, you know, excel in, in that in that manner. So, you know, where his total usage will be, obviously, you know, that'll shake out, you know, even more so as we get closer to training camp. But, um, you know, it gives Paul, you know, some options as far as, uh, you know, obviously, you know, a young player that uh, that we see, uh, you know, still has upside and, and room to grow, um, you know, given given the experience uh, in the league and, and uh, given the um, surroundings of our group. And I think, you know, that uh, that is something that is a key is, you know, he's going to be able to pass the puck to a lot of good forwards. Now, most of the smart hockey people I respect are scratching their heads on the player-for-player asset value involved in this trade. Here's Leah Hextall's take from last night's sports show with Christian O'Mell. My initial reaction to it, Christian, is the fact that I think people have to immediately understand that this trade is not about the player that they got in return. We are not going to sit here and dissect who Neil Pionk is because we don't know who he is. He's a... older NCAA UFA signing that has some offensive upside that hasn't played a lot of game. There's also a great deal of risk to his game. That's what I can tell you. He's about 24, 25 years of age, but this isn't about a player that they traded Jacob Truba for to come in and step into the lineup in Jacob Truba's role. Even Kevin Shoveldayoff said that in his conference call tonight after the trade. And this trade isn't even about the first round pick that they acquired that, as you mentioned, was originally theirs, which they lost in the Kevin Hayes deal, because the chances are they could likely flip that. 
because no matter who they pick, 20th overall or Neil Pionk, that is not going to help them win a Stanley Cup. The Winnipeg Jets did not get better today. What they did do today in this moment is get some cap space. And what people have to realize is we are looking at it, even though Truba wasn't in talks of perhaps a long-term extension, he was an RFA, which you're going to have to sign for one year, and he would have likely gone to arbitration, which means we're looking at anywhere from 5 to $7.5 million that Kevin Shoveldayoff now has in his pocket. And what that does, Christian, is it opens up the conversation for perhaps bringing back Brandon Tanev, Ben Sherratt, and even perhaps being back in that conversation for Tyler Myers. That is what this deal did tonight. So people have to move on from what seems to be an underwhelming trade and realize what the Jets got was not about the acquisition. It was about them acquiring cap space. Now the three players that Leah mentions, Tanev, Sherratt, and Myers, are all players with their own pluses and minuses to discuss. The hard salary cap is the system which allows the Winnipeg Jets to exist in the first place. Cost certainty is critical to a team like the Jets. It is also the system that has forced them to, and unfortunately will force them to trade away talented players they have drafted and developed over the years. Unfortunately, Brett, uh, Jacob Truba is not the first, and he won't be the last of the young players to uh, move on. A Winnipeg ER doctor of 32 years, is speaking out after St. Boniface Hospital sent out a memo redirecting some patients to different ERs, citing unsafe patient levels. Global's Merrick Dakash has more on that. Dr. Paul Doucette has been an emergency room physician for over 32 years. I was frustrated and irritated and felt that I needed to speak out. Dr. Doucette raised concerns about the capacity at St. Boniface Hospital's ER department last Wednesday. I was concerned about new critically ill patients arriving and not being able to adequately look after them. That led St. Boniface to send an email redirecting some patients to other hospitals for up to 24 hours, saying St. Boniface had reached a critical and unsafe capacity. I don't feel that 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 memo was productive other than it shined a light on the problem led to that press conference, led to me speaking out, which I hope may lead to some change. The WRHA and St. Boniface downplayed the email last Thursday, saying patient care was never jeopardized and blaming an unexpected surge in patients for the ER overcrowding. Doucette disagrees. They do want to control messaging that the public hears. I think that's fair, that's their role. Uh, but sometimes you, when you think that their messaging is misleading, they, they need to be corrected. When I speak to internists, cardiologists, intensivists, everybody is frustrated with the lack of capacity to timely admit their patients. The only way Doucette sees the problem improving is more beds being added across the system to get people out of the ER faster. Merrick Takash. Global News. It's curious to me, Brett, that uh, wasn't mentioned in the media conference uh, last week or the news conference last week. What was said to us here by the WHRHA is that they're adding 100 beds to St. Boniface Hospital as quickly as they can. And I have to hand it to Dr. Doucette for coming forward and uh, bringing this to light. It's not an easy thing to do, to speak out against your employer and to say, hey, something's wrong here. Uh, Self-preservation typically 
kicks in and you go, ah, that's what I feel. That's what I believe, but I can't say it out loud. So kudos to Dr. Doucette for uh, speaking up and, and raising concerns. And nobody's saying he's right and anybody else is wrong. These are his concerns. 32 years of experience as an ER doc. We should probably be paying attention. Mackling, do you do a lot of the cooking at home? I do. I do more than my fair share, I think. Oh, no, maybe I better. I do my fair share. <laughs> Did I say more than my fair share? I do. I think I, I, I do do more than my fair share. Okay. Yeah, and no, and that's only because of the, the schedule that we have in our house. It's more con- you know, it's more conducive to our schedule. If, if I begin uh, supper or start and finish supper, um, I pick up the kids from school most days, and so I'm home with them when they're doing their homework, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen, for sure. Well, a recent survey found that not only are three-quarters, 77% of Canadians worried they are missing out on valuable family memories by not cooking together, the survey also found over 40% of Canadians are worried that their family heritage will be lost if their family recipes aren't passed down. Our next guest is a Canadian chef and cookbook author. We're going to discuss how Canadians can prevent the loss of those family recipes and recapture some of the good old days when we spent time in the kitchen together as a family. Chef Anna Olson joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Chef Olson, good morning to you. Oh, good morning. Great to uh, connect with you again, Anna. And uh, this idea of spending more time in the kitchen together, it's uh, becoming a lost art, unfortunately. It is. We're, we're taking advantage of convenience and cutting corners on timing, but at the cost of uh, family memories and cherished memories. When we look back on our own childhoods, I think we'll all agree and more than three quarters of us do, according to this, uh, the LG Kitchen Memory Rescue Survey, that we're missing building these moments. And we acknowledge that we, we know we're too busy. So the, the challenge is, in partnering with LG on this campaign, is how can we do this? And especially bringing back, um, for me, heritage recipes are important. Um, did you have a grandmother who shared or made special dishes for you growing up? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my my grandmother, one of my grandmothers, was a much better baker than she was mm-hmm. a cook. But yeah, they're they're absolutely. And my mom, my mom's spaghetti sauce, meat sauce recipe is so good that my stepmom uses it. That's how oh, good that's it fantastic. is. <laughs> and, she, and she does make it the way it should be made. Yeah. Well, I think she does. She, she makes Good. it to suit me. So, but, and, and my kids have learned how to make it as well. So, uh, not that, uh, that's a common thing, but my boys, uh, like to get into the kitchen in particular with their grandmother and do baking with them. Well, you know what you are pointing to, I'm just going to check your name right off my list. Because <laughs> you're, you have fulfilled exactly what we're trying to do with this Kitchen Memory Rescue campaign. It's share the recipes, recreate them, make new memories so that we can pass it on to the next generation. So the fact that you've got your kids already doing it, that is job done. But it does take 
you know, part of my partnering with LG Canada on this is to inspire pulling out these recipes. Or maybe, I mean, you're lucky enough to have a complete recipe. Some people um, have little scribblings on an index card or the back of a napkin. um, Or some just simply have the verbal uh, phrasings of, well, you know, you take the ingredients and you mix it until it's right. And then you cook it until it's done. Well, what are you supposed to do with that? And, And how to recreate it. So... What I'm suggesting is that um, I have created a couple of wonderful videos, and you can go to lg.ca slash kitchenmemoryrescue to check out two partnerings I did, someone who wanted to recreate their mom's chili sauce and another lovely young woman um, who had her mother's cornbread recipe. She no longer has her mother with her, but she wants to relive these memories through the cornbread. So we worked on creating taking the time in the kitchen together to create these um, memories. And using modern technology means we're going to take what works for us today so that we can treasure these recipes and pass them forward. So when you have an oven that takes, um, like the probate convection, that takes 20% less time to cook because of the convection feature, but you don't have to worry about adapting the recipe to the technology. The oven does that. You're more likely to pop those cornbread muffins um, into the oven or those lovely dessert dishes. I have a great recipe for rhubarb cinnamon buns. And I love, for me, cinnamon is one of those memory triggers. Growing up with, my mom was the fruit pie maker. My grandmother made the yeast breads like cinnamon buns. So it's to me putting the two together when I, when I make this recipe. Anna, you mentioned that you're going to check Greg off of your list, but I suggest mm-hmm. I'll, be toward, I'll be near the top of your list okay. because I, uh, you referenced how a lot of people are just, there's sort of cutting corners for convenience. Mm-hmm. And I admit that I can't tell you how many times where it comes up, me and my girlfriend say, what should we make for dinner? And then it ends up being what's on skip the dishes or what's on DoorDash. Mm. Cause I don't feel like cooking. So when you see, do you, uh, are, are those apps your enemy? Um, not necessarily. There is a time and place, but you know, we, we schedule so many activities into our days um, and for, especially with families, then our lives meld with everyone's activities that we have to almost treat mealtime as an activity itself. And so what I, I propose is, um, you know, you look to what is local and seasonal because that is going to be its most flavorful and most nutritious. Um, and make an excursion of going to a farmer's market. You know, rhubarb is in season right now. Uh, Lettuces are just starting, radishes, things like that. Embrace these ingredients. Um, And then if if you make an activity of going to the market as a family, and it doesn't have to take that long, you come back, when you cook together, that's where the magic happens. It doesn't have to be a big project like making um, strawberry jam for three days. But if you buy, you know, once strawberries come out, in Winnipeg in a couple of weeks, you know, you make a small batch, you buy two quarts and in an hour, you've got strawberry jam done. You know, you've sterilized the jars in your dishwasher or you make a a fridge or freezer jam. You don't even have to go through the whole canning process and you keep that, that taste of summer fresh in your fridge for months and months. It's amazing. We could have a a very extensive conversation here and I don't want to leave this discussion with you under the interpretation that, uh, or the uh, the view that I'm, I'm I'm perfect on this because one of the challenges <laughs> that we have it's I think 
as well the construct of our houses these days. We have these islands in the kitchen, and mm-hmm. we have TVs everywhere. And I know mm-hmm. for as good as I do sometimes, I will make dinner. The boys will be involved or not involved. Mm-hmm. And then my wife comes home, and my kids will eat at the island, and I will go somewhere to because I need to consume news and do work while I'm eating. So th- there are other stresses and other stressors that uh, prevent us from from sitting and, and eating as a family. And we need to push those aside sometimes, I think. I think so. And I think summer is the perfect opportunity to actually give it some thought because we will be together more. Kids are done school. Hopefully, perhaps you have a little more time, but at least the days are longer. Um, So if you can go sit outside or even just take, it doesn't have to be a a long drawn out meal, but take that 20 minutes, half an hour and have a conversation while you're eating. Everyone's going to remember that. And you're going to feel good about what you ate. Anna Olson, what's the online resource once again that you mentioned? It is lg.ca slash kitchen memory rescue. And make sure to follow Anna Olson on social media as well. For example, on Instagram, you can find her chef, Anna Olson. And chef Anna Olson, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 846 on 680 CJOB. I do admit uh, I've recently tried a couple of uh, things involving rhubarb, Greg, and I, I... I hadn't tried it before. I think I tried like a strawberry rhubarb jam mm-hmm. recently. And? I really like it. Mm. I need to get my hands on uh, some rhubarb pie, I think. Kathy Kennedy is going to talk to Getty Stewart today, and they're going to talk about rhubarb. Oh, nice. Yes. And uh, my mom had a black thumb. She could make any plant die. The only thing <laughs> that ever grew in our backyard growing up was rhubarb. Oh, wow. So there you go. Find out how you can make use of that, as uh, Newman might call broccoli, that vile weed. (laughs) But right now we want to talk about how we get to work and maybe a different way we should think about getting to work. Now for us, Greg, I wouldn't be comfortable doing this, and not to say that there aren't people out on the road at... 3.30 in the morning on their bikes. Right. But I know that I wouldn't be comfortable. I used to walk to work as much as I could, but that kind of got wiped off the table for me uh, because, you know, when we come to work at 4 a.m., I'm not walking to work in the dark. I used to live on Cordon and would have to walk through River Heights to get here, have to cross a bridge that was not lit, the footbridge. So uh, I have to take a car. Yeah, I I would say that there are people would suggest that, Crossing that bridge any time of the day is could be considered dicey. Yeah. But so, but yesterday was bike to work day, and thousands of Winnipeggers use their bikes to get to work every day. Um, on the list of major issues in our city, I would say crime, taxes, potholes. Yeah. The next group of issues that can cause casual discussion, I don't know, over coffee or a beer to heat up are Portage and Main, transit, and Lack of cycling infrastructure. Our guest has been involved in Bike Week since its inception 12 years ago. He's a cycling instructor and chairperson of Bike Week in Winnipeg. We say good morning to Dave Elmore. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Do we know how many people use their bike on a regular basis, say on a on a good cycling day? Well, I'm not sure what we have, that we know exactly those numbers. There have been, you know, um, Bike Winnipeg uh, did um, in the past had been doing some surveys. 
Um, but the numbers uh, are clearly rising, and all, you don't really need numbers to see it. You see it every single day. You see an, an increase. Um, it's been just increasing year after year. We're just seeing more and more bicycles on the road. Yeah, I do see. Uh, it, it surprises me when I see the number of people on bikes, especially now with the uh, the advent of those fat tires. You see more people on their bikes in the winter as well because they're so, uh, I guess, they're, they can just handle the elements a bit better. But what would it take to get more people to use their bikes as their commuter vehicle? Well, clearly, I mean, the, 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 the biggest the biggest problem there is infrastructure. And, and you need to make people feel as though they're safe on on the on the roads or in the, on that infrastructure and without that infrastructure you're just never going to convince um those those people who are or even some of those people who are on the fence you're not going to convince them until that they 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 look out they look at the infrastructure and say i i feel safe on that so when you look at you know infrastructure in other in other countries and other places that's what really is drives those numbers forward is as when we increase and not only increase but also provide infrastructure that that people feel safe using I know and follow a ton of people on social media who argue back and forth about bicycle infrastructure and how required it is or that it isn't and whether or not it's terrain that is the biggest deterrent from people riding their bicycles or whether it's weather. Uh, Do we have a handle on how many decent, and I put that on quotation marks, cycling days a year we have in Winnipeg? Has anybody done a study on this so we can, can talk about this in real numbers? I'm not aware that there's been any study, and and if you look, you know, if you look around once again, those numbers numbers of people riding bicycles through the winter are increasing as well. So again, you'd have the uh, you you may have that uh, divisive debate on whether or not uh, 365 days a year is 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 a fair number of days that people are people can ride their bikes. Um, so I, I think there's no specific number out there. I think somebody should aware. look at that, Dave, because it's difficult to have a genuine conversation with people. We had a, a, a talk about some things we'd like to see downtown just the other day, and immediately people said, this vintage and this panacea you see for downtown Winnipeg uh, just won't work because of our climate. And my answer to that is you cannot build a city for 90 days of freezing cold weather. What about the other 280 days? What about the other 300? Depending on what the math is. And and I think it would be advantageous to those that are advocating for more bike usage and investment in more bike lanes to sit down and say, hey, we have 250 or 200, whatever the number is, I think it's going to be more than half the days that are suitable for riding a bike for the average person. I would agree. I would agree. And if we look at, again, looking at other, other countries overseas, um, many of them have very similar um, winter, uh, you know, winter that, that to, to what we have. And people there ride year round uh, without any real issues. And the honest truth is they don't have any kind of, most of them don't have special bicycles or, or anything else. They simply, uh, they simply have infrastructure and, they, and it's maintained. We have a text message from Tim at 204-780-6868 who says, I want proper, safe bike lanes now, not in a 20-year plan. In terms of the bike lanes that we do have, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the different kinds of bike lanes that exist in the city? 
Well, I mean, there there are there are basically the two types of bike lanes. If we're talking about bike specific lanes, and so there are the protected bike lanes, and they can be protected either by a physical barrier, or they could be part what they call parking protected bike lanes. And those 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 lanes are basically on the on the far right hand side, and they're protected by parked parked vehicles. The other bike lanes, of course, are the ones that are on street. Uh, they're not protected. Generally, they're on the left hand, just to the left hand side of parked vehicles. And they're, again, when we're talking about something that's going to encourage people, those are not the kind of bike lanes that are going to encourage people to ride bicycles simply because they are still in amongst traffic. It is a designated space for, for us as bicyclists to, to ride in. But it's not protected, and that's that's really what we need if we want to uh, to take this to the next level. In Helsinki, uh, they have a, a dedicated. Uh, it's essentially a freeway for bicycles. You can walk on it, but it is designed for bicycles. They've got a north-south route. They've got an east-west route, and then you can get off on and onto some of the other commuter routes from there. We have a, a kind of a separated bike lane situation on Bannatyne Avenue that's had lots of controversy because they, they took uh, parking spots out in order to put this in and, and reduce the number of, of travel lanes to two and rush hour, etc. But I had seen on social media, some discussion about the proper way to use that lane, Dave, as a cyclist and as a motorist. And uh, bear with me here, eastbound on Bannatyne Avenue, you're going to have that protected bike lane to your right-hand side. But if I want to turn right, which is southbound onto Main Street, I have to go across that dedicated bike lane. It's not protected across Main Street, clearly. There's a there's green paint and a dotted line. How do I handle that? If I am ahead of a cyclist that's in that dedicated lane, do I have to wait for them to pass me? How do, how do I deal with that? Well, generally, you, you shouldn't be crossing that, that lane without, certainly without looking to ensure that there's not a cyclist there. The, the problem the problem here is that there are so many there are better I'll say better design options for intersections than than what we are than what we have here in Winnipeg or what we're having or what's being constructed here in Winnipeg the the point though I think is that it really takes it really takes both the people on the bicycles and the people in the cars to pay attention to each other um, when I instruct people I I tell them you know, when we're talking about these intersections, it doesn't matter whether you're in a bike lane, a protected bike lane, or on the road, intersections are, are an area where there's potential conflict and you need to be aware and, and stay alert. Uh, this whole idea, we're, we are getting a ton of, of uh, text messages on this because, as I mentioned, this is a conversation that brings people alive uh, with regard to uh, spending money on this. And one of the first text messages we got is, we should widen Keniston Boulevard before we spend any more money on bike lanes in Winnipeg. How do you feel when people say stuff like that, Dave? Well, ultimately, I mean, we've got, we have some issues with, with traffic flow everywhere, but I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to encourage people to, to make um, sustainable and, and, and better decisions or even giving them the option of, of, of different um sustainable ways of getting from place to place we need to we need to spend money on both and we need to be able to spend be able to put some uh some of those resources to making uh making the the infrastructure safe in order to encourage people to actually get out and try their bikes
Dave, we only have about a minute left here, but just very quickly, how far away do you think Winnipeg is to being what you would consider to be a proper city for bike transportation? Well, again, I guess it depends on how how far you want to take it. I mean, if you look at at you know some of the the uh, the cities that are are the ones that that people all talk about, like Copenhagen, we've got a long, long ways to go to reach those kinds of to reach that stage. But we're making we're making progress, and we need we just need to continue that progress and continue to and tra- continue to build uh, infrastructure to allow people or give people those options. All right, Dave Elmore, chair of Bike Week in Winnipeg, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Dave, thank you very much for this. We appreciate the access. Absolutely welcome. Greg Mackling, we are about to introduce someone who has just been given an exciting honor. Without question. Without question. Uh, Manitoba has produced some exceptional hockey players over the years. Some of the best goalies and goal scorers were born in our province. One of the most prolific playoff goal scorers in the history of the NHL is right at the top of that list. Our next guest scored 19 goals in 16 playoff games in 1976. The Riverton Rifle, Reggie Leach, joins us from his home in Ontario. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning to you guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic. Uh, What's the weather like down where you are? I know it was sunny and hot in Toronto yesterday, continuing today. Well, I'm I'm about five hours from Toronto, but whatever weather you guys get, uh, you, we usually get that in a couple of days later. So. <laughs> well, then be prepared for some rain. Hey, Reggie, um, a week ago, I guess it was eight days ago, an incredible honor bestowed upon you. What happened at Brock University? Well, I tell you one thing, it, it was uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, when I got the phone call and that. Uh, Jokingly, I said to the lady, I said, you sure you got the right one? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, but going down there and the way they treated you and everything else, and I and, uh, have never been to a, a graduation at a university before, and uh, and I was a key, keystone speaker at it and stuff like that. And, and you know, it was, it, was, it was just amazing is that uh, usually don't, I don't usually get excited about stuff, but waiting around and meeting all the deans and meeting everybody and waiting for your time to walk up with everybody else and all that stuff is, uh, it was like a hockey game, really, you know, uh, uh, but once everything started, everything was okay. It was, it was, it was just a great, great honor. Yeah. Well, and, and typical Reggie Leach fashion, uh, very modest Brett, he received an honorary doctorate from Brock university. This for a man who left school at Grade eight, according to legend and lore. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, playing in Flintflon at that time as a, as a young hockey player, uh, you weren't allowed to go to school because uh, we wouldn't have had enough days in school. You would have failed anyhow. And uh, because of all the travel that we did at that time. Um, but, you know, like I always said that is that I took a big chance and, uh, you know, if I if I didn't make it in hockey, I probably would have got my, I would have had my watch from the Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting Company. But now. So you grew up in Manitoba. You played for Philadelphia. Uh, why the connection to Brock University? I know your home is in Ontario, but why specifically this university? I really don't know. Somebody uh, nominated me, I guess, from from this area for all the stuff that I do across Canada with the youth. Um, you know, not not just First Nation youth, but everybody uh, that I, I am involved with in that. You know, right, right now I dedicated my life to. Uh, to uh, all the youth in Canada and places I speak at, I you know I, th- I talk about 
pretty well everything, you know, our life choices, drugs and alcohol, and, and uh, uh, you know, what how important education is today. Why are you so open about your struggle, Reggie? You, you struggled with uh, alcohol. You struggled with other uh, forms of addiction. Uh, you've turned yourself around. You're turning yourself and your life around. You've become a successful businessman. Uh, you, you're an author. Why do you share the story? Well, I think it's I think it's great because I, I I really believe that uh, you know we everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, not just First Nation people. Everybody makes mistakes. And and I believe that giving people second chances, um, and I think it's very important us for as as elders and and for parents and 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 you know uh, for our educators to is to give these kids a second chance and, and young adults a second chance in life and and move on because uh, sometimes it takes two or three times to to get yourself straightened out but sooner or later you're going to do it and you're going to move on with your life and, and I think it's very important for us to to. Uh, we as as parents and elders and that is, is point the kids in the right direction and, you know, pay attention to our kids. I see too many people that are so involved in making money that they forget about they have kids that are 12 to 15 years old at home. And when you have those kids come up and, and say to you, mom and dad, I need to talk to you. And the parents always say, oh, I don't have time right now. I'll talk later. And that talk never comes. And that's a part of, uh, I believe, I'm, I'm a big believer. That's a part of our high suicides across Canada. We're speaking with the Riverton Rifle, Reggie Leach, a member of the Barrens River First Nation, volunteers with First Nations youth, had a wonderful career in the NHL with the Philadelphia Flyers. But, Reggie, I understand that you're more proud of what you've done after your hockey career. Why is that? Well, hockey to me was just, it's just a small part of my life circle. It's just a stepping stone. And I learned, I learned through hockey, uh, a lot of wonderful things. I learned a lot of, lot of, uh, uh, you know, all the things I screwed up when I was in in, in my twenties and, and early thirties. But you move on from there. And you you move on. That's just a short part of my life. I'm always going to be known as a regulation hockey player. But I'm more proud of what I have accomplished after I left the game, and what I did with my life. Um, you know, hockey isn't everything. I, I think too many players get into a little 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 world of theirs of hockey world and they don't go beyond that and it's a nice beautiful world out here there's lots of different things to do besides hockey uh hockey is a good entertainment today i loved watching the game i enjoyed the game today of the skilled players and everything else but there's more there's more to life than that you, you need to expand it to everybody else that use your knowledge to uh to help other people Reggie, I had a conversation with someone at baseball, my kid's baseball game the other day, and we were talking about hockey, and I love the game. I played it myself, but my kids don't play at a competitive level. And the person I was speaking to asked me, why don't your kids play hockey? And I was pretty frank about it. And I'm going to offend some people listening this morning, and it's going to resonate uh, with others. Uh, The culture of hockey at the youth level is broken in my mind. Have you got a view on that? Well, I think right now is that, you know, you. the youth hockey today, you know, I think too many parents, they have that big dream for their kids to make them into a national hockey league. And, and you know, um, I see it all along right across Canada where you have uh, parents think their kids are going to make a national hockey league. And, they, you know, they're doing they're going to all these different uh, uh, hockey academies and all these hockey terms across the countryside. And, and 
And uh, you know, I think it's it's great to keep them keep them busy. It's great to give them hope. But it's it's a tough it's a tough uh, sport to to make into the National Hockey League. You know, it's uh, you know I always ask people. You know how many people ever played in the National Hockey League over the last hundred years? There's only seventy nine hundred players that ever played the game. So you figure that out today that all the millions of kids that are playing. Your, your chances of making even $1 in the National Hockey League is a half a percent of, of a percent. Well, it's a, a fascinating so that, statistic, and I think a lot of pe- more people need to hear it. I, I'm not into crushing anybody's dreams, but... Uh, no, 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 me neither. But it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to have dreams. And, and to these kids, uh, like I always say, parents always have this idea that kids should play hockey 365 days a year. Right. My question to the parents all the time is, do you work 365 days a year? No, you don't. You have a break. You have holidays. You take those holidays to get away from your work. The kids need the same thing also. They need to get away from hockey for two or three weeks or a month, play another sport for a while, then come back refreshed. Reggie, they're, not going to be, they're not going to be out of shape in one month. Reggie, before we let you go, I want to uh, speak to uh, what you've been doing in, in Riverton. It was a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Rod Paulson, that connected us. And I know Rod's really uh, active up in the interlake. What's happening in Riverton that you're lending your name and your energy to? Well, I, I do a lot of stuff for my hometown. Um, every time they're, they need something, they call me up to do a fundraiser or something or something like that. And, and um, they called me about six months ago. They wanted to know if I could help them to to uh, fundraise for uh, for our new plant, ice plant in Riverton, because ours is, is uh, no good anymore, the compressor and that. So uh, I said, sure, I'll help out. And then sure enough, uh, you know, I got involved again and, and always go back to Rod Paulson as my MC. So I, I, all I have to do is give him a call. He's there. And but it's it's a good thing always to give back. I'm I'm a big believer of giving back to uh, to uh, to Riverton because I th- I think that Riverton, if it wasn't for them and for the people in Riverton in general, is that I wouldn't be the person who I am today because it takes a whole community to raise somebody. The Riverton Rifle, Reggie Leach, joining us live on 680 CJOB after getting an honorary doctorate from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Reggie, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations for this. Thank you, guys, and uh, keep the weather warm there, okay? (laughs) You got it. We'll send it your way. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.